The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. We need you. We need to hear from you. We need to hear of you. I want to pray then that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would come and dwell in our midst here in power. Well, you are certainly here, but would you dwell here in power? Would the Spirit be commissioned to work in each of our hearts and minds to change us? Spirit, I now pray that you would give life to these words, that you would accomplish your purpose here, and that Christ would be lifted up and exalted. Pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. In the summer of 2003, our family car was a 1988 mid-sized American sedan, which is a nice way of saying 15-year-old clunker. You know, the engine was kind of going, the body was rusting out, the, the ceiling fabric had descended into the sitting space. It was a beauty. It had served us well for a number of years, but though it wasn't quite dead, it was done. And furthermore, we were expecting our third child, and the back seat was physically not large enough to get car, three car seats in a row, so we needed a new car. Unfortunately, it being the middle of seminary and all, we were also financially rather strapped, and so we began to think about and explore different ways that we might um, work our finances to buy different sorts of cars. And in that process, we ended up contacting and speaking with our financial advisor who was a longtime friend of ours and, and actually a longtime financial supporter of, our, of us in various ministry endeavors. And we talked it through with him and he gave us some options about things we could do and said he'd be thinking about it and would give us a call later in the week. Well, he did call us back a couple days later and he, and he gave us what was probably his best solution. He said that he and his wife had been thinking about it and they had decided to buy a 2003 minivan, almost a brand new minivan, and give it to us for free. A 2003 $22,000 minivan for free. By far the largest gift we'd ever received. We didn't really even know what to say. We didn't know how to take that. So we said, thank you. <laughs> said, thank you to that family. And then we thanked God every time we drove that van. It was a stunning gift to us. And then the fall semester began again. And then Erica was born, and work and ministry continued, and, and you know what? That stunning van, that stunning gift became just the van. That marvelous story of how that was given to us became just an interesting fact of history. And until I was working on an introduction for this sermon, I hadn't even thought of that story in months and months. The biggest gift I had ever received totally left my mind. Had no daily effect on how I thought of the gift itself or of the one who ultimately gave it to us. No effect at all. And that's too bad. It's too bad that this story so closely resembles how we often view the wonderful story of how God saved us. 
It's too bad because this, guy, this kind of forgetfulness dishonors God as he is diminished in our thinking and it impoverishes us as he is diminished in our thinking. God intends for his mighty works of yesterday to grip us today, to grip us on the inside and change us and renew us. And when those works of yesterday grip us today, they will drive us on tomorrow to faith and hope and love and good deeds. It's the connection between being and doing. And I've talked about that like a dozen times already since we've been working through Ephesians. And I'm going to keep talking about it because it's true and because it is Paul's God-inspired tactic here in these first couple of chapters of Ephesians. He keeps saying the same thing. Now, the verses are, are always different and the particular subject is different, but the general aim is constant. Behold your magnificent God. Look at him from this angle, would you? And then how about over here from this angle? And maybe check him out from over here. Marvelous, isn't he? That's what Paul's up to. He's trying every which way he can to glue your heart to this God, to fasten your eyes to him so that you'll be able to walk across the waves of life. And towards that end, Paul picks up his pen, if you will, this morning and writes down chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. These ten verses are a unit. They all belong together. And so I'm going to read all ten verses. But actually this morning we'll be focusing on just verses one through seven. I'm going to leave eight through ten for next week. We'll see as we get into it that this passage is connected to the previous passage and to last week's sermon. And so the main point of this sermon might sound a little familiar. It might sound like part of last week's sermon. And it should. Here's what we're going to be working at this morning. The main point. God in power has raised you from the dead. So worship him, rejoice, and remember. God in power, that great power that we saw to be at work in Christ last week, and in verse 19 of chapter 1 saw was for us, God in power has raised you from the dead. Not physically, of course. Spiritually speaking, he has raised you from the dead. Worship him. Rejoice. Rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. Worship him. Rejoice and remember. This statement about the main point, God and power has raised you from the dead. Worship him. Rejoice and remember. That main point has three parts. It's a part about God, what God's done, God and power. A part about you, you were raised. And a part about the intended result. That's the worship, the rejoice, and the remember part. Those three parts come right out of this text. That's how we're going to approach it this morning. We're actually going to see them in a slightly different order in the passage, but that's how we'll, that's how we'll be looking at it. Three parts. But first, let me read the text. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, I will read. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may be. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good. Which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. The first part in the text is actually the part about you. And me of course. All humanity is here, and it is not pretty. It is not good news. The first part, you were dead, by nature an object of wrath. You and I and every man, woman, and child ever born, born in Adam, born in his family tree, was born in sin that is born under its power, born under its rule and its control and under its condemnation. You were born spiritually dead by nature an object of wrath. Nothing could be more clear and nothing could be more awful. Look at verse 1. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Speaking to Christians the grammar located in our past. You were dead. You once walked like that. But for those who are not yet Christians, it is still your future here. It's still your present and your future. In our past, this situation characterized us. Dead. Now, obviously, he's talking about walking and living, so he's not speaking about a physical death here. He's talking about spiritual death. It's not that death was coming or that death was our destiny or that death was what we deserved, death was what we had. It was our abiding condition. It's what we were. Dead men walking. All of us. That means we were alienated from God. We were utterly unable to communicate to Him, to respond to Him. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is using a crystal clear word here. When he talks about dead or death, it's not open to interpretation. We all know what it means. Everybody knows physical death when they see it. We get it. You know, sometimes there are ways that, that people are injured or hurt that are not quite dead yet. You know, a massive coma, a long-term coma, can actually be recovered from. I know, I've seen it on ER. On ER, it happens. I've seen it. <laughs> but it happens in real life, too. You can overcome a coma. You know, there are seemingly fatal wounds and injuries that actually can be healed. There are serious diseases that can be recovered from. Medicine can sometimes intervene and reverse or fix or somehow help a lot of these things. Sometimes medicine doesn't have to intervene. We just recover from it. We get over it. Our bodies kind of heal themselves. But death is different. And we all know that. And that's why Paul wrote dead twice here and in verse 5 he's drawing a direct parallel between physical death and spiritual death he wants to connect these common elements here both are final both cannot be overcome 
both leave their subjects completely, completely, completely unresponsive to the living. Apart from the work of God, the dead will never live again. God alone can overcome death. And it's not a cooperative effort. The corpse doesn't chip in 10% of the work, or 5% of the work, or 1% of the work. None of it. Dead men never live again unless God intervenes. That is explicit in the, in the idea of death. Paul uses that here so that we'll understand our condition. We were dead. It's the same idea that he picks up on in, in Romans chapter 8, talking about us in our flesh. That word's going to appear a little further down here in Ephesians 2. In our flesh, this is our condition. Spiritual death. Unwilling to please God. Unable to please God. We can't respond. We walk around spiritually dead to the living God, dead in trespasses and sins. To define those words a little bit, what he's saying is that we lived habitually in conscious, deliberate rebellion against him. There's no accidental missteps here. There's no slip-ups. It's choice. We're in rebellion. We walked contrary to God's holiness and instead walked, picking up in verse 2, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Our habit in life was contrary to God. It was set against him and it was in agreement with the pattern of this world and with its ruler, Satan. Now, that phrase, the course of this world, is pictured everywhere in the Bible and it's always evil. It is always contrary to God. Now, of course, there, there is beauty in this world. There is the random act of kindness that happens. But if we work on those things and examine them and look at them and come down, down, down beneath them, eventually we're going to find that all of those things rest on human people, human desires and efforts, and none of them at the bottom rest on an attempt to please God through faith in Christ. And the Bible is clear, that which is without faith in Christ is sin. So even those random act of kindnesses at the bottom, they are themselves also sin. The way of this world is ultimately contrary to God because it does not yield to Christ as Lord. And so in the world we find value systems like materialism or chauvinism. We find dehumanizing of people and abuses of power and heightened vanity and personal pride and, and on and on. And those value systems... Behaviors and ways of thinking characterized us day in and day out. We followed them. We lived our lives after them. We established our hopes and efforts in accord with them. We set our affections after them. We walked after the ways of this world. We walked after Satan also, the prince of the power of the air. That is the ruler of the spiritual realm, the ruler of what's going on right here. Now, he's, he's called the ruler here. But obviously, we saw last week that Christ has been seated on the, at the right hand as the ruler of all. It's kind of like in the days of Jesus when Herod was king. The Bible says that. Everybody called him king, but he wasn't Caesar. Caesar was the ruler of the Roman Empire, but there were lots of kings. What's going on here? Christ is the ruler. Satan is the ruler. And we followed hard after him. Now, around this time of year, around Halloween, 
the occult and those who explicitly worship Satan get a lot more press than usual. But if you were to ask the average non-Christian, do you follow for Satan? What do you think you're going to hear? Are you crazy? <laughs> of course not. Who wants to do that? And that's the obvious response of most people. But the Bible right here says otherwise. What we're doing, we lived in that spiritual death as we are following after Satan. He's powerfully at work in those who do not trust Christ, and he was powerfully at work in us too. Our fallen natures, dead in sin, habitually chose against God, and in so doing they walked just like Satan. They rebelled just like Satan. They set themselves up as the final authority just like Satan. They helped build a rebellious world system just like Satan. He was secretly writing the road map for life behind all of our actions. Most of us would never have consciously agreed with that, yet it was true. That's what was going on. And even though, though most of us don't want to call him ruler or call him our Lord or say that we worship him, that's what life was like for us in that state. Satan had already won the battle for our souls. He claimed them as his own. They were walking to his glory. And they were destined to his punishment. Our souls were destined to hell just like Satan. We were spiritually dead and headed to eternal death. We followed after the pattern of this world. We followed after Satan. And that's how we habitually lived. Influenced by the world and by Satan. And here's the kicker. This was all to our pleasure. It's what we wanted. Look at verse 3. Among whom, among the sons of disobedience, among the rebellious people, among whom we also once lived. We used to be like that, and that should give pause to any of our, our claims for arrogance or pride. That's what we lived like. There, but for the grace of God, go I is a true statement. We once lived there in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In short, that's where we lived, and that's what we wanted. And that's hard to swallow, but it's right there in that verse. That life, that walking, was characterized by us living out our passions and our desires. You see that there in that verse? We had passions and we had desires that we then carried out. We weren't carrying out somebody else's passions or desires. Those were ours. Our flesh, our fallen sinful nature, same word and concept here as in Romans 8, which is why I mentioned it. Our flesh cannot please God, but it can and it does please itself and Satan and the world. Those passions and desires, they come from within us. They come from our fallen hearts. They're in us in that state. And what's inside is carried out in our actions. There's the connection between the being and the doing flipped. Evil fallen being leads to fallen doing. It's the same connection. And that's how we walked habitually. And so you walked in trespasses and sin you walked in accord with the evil desires and passions of your fallen nature. You walked after the pattern of Satan. You walked after the pattern of this world. That was your habitual way of life. It was your being. Literally, verse 1 says, And you, being dead, 
That's who you were. It was deliberate and willful according to your will. It's what you wanted. It matched your desires. You cut God out of the picture and fashioned a world after your own liking with a made-up God that you approached when and in the manner of your own choosing. This was your being. It was your nature. And so by nature, by virtue of your rebellious, wicked being, by nature, just like every other person on earth, by nature, you were an object of wrath. God, in his infinite holiness, the one on whom the eyes of sinful man can never look, the holy, holy, holy God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and you, the God of all of the creation, holy is his name, the holy one looked at you, dead in your rebellion, shaking your fist at him, attempting to reshape his creation and refashion him in your image. He looked at you, saw your wickedness and kindled the fires of hell, prepared for your destruction, wrath. This is not a God who was mildly irritated. He was not upset. He was not frustrated. He's not hot-headed getting ticked off at things. Wrath is, here's a definition, strong indignation directed at wrongdoing with a focus on retribution. Retribution, a punishment that has been earned. What kind of punishment do you think we earn for spurning the eternal holy God? This attitude is the rightful attitude of a judge. And God Almighty is indeed judge and jury and executioner. He knows and sees all. And he sees those who are by nature in rebellion. And he has prepared to pour out his wrath on them in hell. This foundational truth is all over the Bible. It's in Ephesians 5 again. It's in the Gospels on the lips of Jesus. It's in the book of Revelation. And that's all the New Testament. It's in the Old as well. It's everywhere. And it's everywhere because God wants the sons of disobedience to know what is coming. That they might turn and flee from the wrath to come. It is coming. Jesus will return to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. It is coming. All people are by nature dead in their trespasses and sin. By nature, objects of wrath without God and without hope in this world. It is true. Believe it and tremble. You were dead. By nature, an object of the awful wrath of Almighty God. but God. But God. But God. Those two words at the beginning of verse 4 might be the two most important words ever written. But God. Look at that. If you don't tremble as you see the rock-solid case built against you in verses 1 to 3. If you don't tremble as you behold a rightfully indignant holy God prepared to eternally destroy you in his wrath, if you don't tremble at that but instead try to clip it out of your Bible and ignore it and accuse me of exaggerating, if you're not moved by the seriousness of what that first part says about you, then the second part will likely not be the thunderbolt that it is meant to be. You were dead 
but God. The first part is about you and all people, and it is terrible. And that serves to make the second part all the more stunning. May you weep with joy and surprise as you see again what God has done. You were dead, but God made you alive in mercy. God, the same God, it's not a different God, it's the very same God of verses 1 to 3, took you who were dead, an object of wrath, he took you and he made you alive in Christ. All of that because of his unfathomable mercy. God made you alive in mercy. That needs to be seen to be believed. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. That's right there in the Bible too. The very same God who created a hell in which to punish rebels for eternity. That very same God. Don't think there's two different gods going on here. Don't diminish that God. Don't accuse me of exaggerating, please. Don't diminish him. Add to him in your mind. He is both the God of verse 3 and the God of verse 4. The same God. very same God of wrath is now seen to be rich, abundant, overflowing in mercy. He is merciful. That is, it is his nature to be kind and to have concern for someone in need. That's who he is. He is merciful. He is inclined towards giving aid to the hopeless and the helpless. To take from them what they deserve and to give to them what they do not deserve. That juxtaposition of wrath and rich mercy, that putting wrath and rich mercy side by side should shock you. And he doesn't just have a little bit of mercy. He's not mildly merciful or somewhat inclined towards kindness, kind of loving. He isn't somewhat concerned. The text says he is rich in mercy. Paul's trying to lay on something here to make something clear that is drastically different and unexpected, especially given where verse 3 ended. God has more deep, emotional compassionate concern for us than we may ever know. He's rich in mercy. And he goes on to add more. He has loved us with an overwhelming love. Elsewhere the Bible will simply say that God is love. A marvelous truth. God is passionate in his affection for us. He's not disinterested in his creation like perhaps a, a maker or designer of a car might be. You know, people who make and design cars don't give a rip about the actual car. They might care about the design or the, the beauty of its usefulness or the creativity in it, but the actual pieces of metal and plastic and rubber and leather that drive around the street, they don't care anything about them. That is not how God is with his creation. He loves us with a deep love. He's tied to us. We matter to him. He's concerned for us. Jesus walked around on the earth filled with anguish when he looked at lost people. 
He healed countless people, their physical conditions, because he was concerned for their physical conditions. He knew they were not spiritually saved, but he was still concerned for their physical conditions. But even more than that, he was deeply concerned about their spiritual conditions. Jesus cared. He had compassion when he saw lost people wandering in their spiritual deadness. But something needs to be pointed out here. Something needs to be made clear. The us in this verse, it says, because of the great love with which he loved us, that us is only Christians. And that needs to be made clear both for the folks who are not yet Christians and for the folks here who are Christians. The rest of mankind was left back in verse 3. And he is silent about them from here on out. The us is the same as the we in verse 3. The we who once walked like everybody else did. So there's two groups there. There's the everybody else and those who once walked like that. That's the we, that's the us that's carried on into verse 4. He's just talking about believers. And then if you move from verse 4 on into verse 5, you can see again that he's just talking about believers. There's a because in verse 4. His great love and rich mercy, for that matter, have caused something. It's the ground of something. It's the root. It's what because is getting at. Because of his great love with which he loved us, you can look on to the next verse. Because he loved us, he made us alive in Christ. We were dead, and because he loved us, he made us alive. So the, the us here that he loves are those who are alive, the believers those who once walked like everybody else does. That needs to be made clear for both groups, as I said. First, a, a brief word to those here who have not yet given their hearts fully to Christ. Those who either know they haven't and have come here kind of investigating, or maybe some who don't really know they haven't. <laughs> but it needs to be made clear for your sake, so that you know where you sit in this passage so that you know you've been left in verse 3. There are marvelous things in verse 4 and following. Marvelous things, mercy and love and grace. Honestly, out of concern for you, that you've been left in verse 3, and you're still there. There is hope in verse 4 and following, but to get there, you must give your life to Christ. You must acknowledge Him as the eternal God never created, God eternal, who came down to earth to die on the cross to pay for people's sins. You must acknowledge that and give your heart to Him in humility, in submission. Turn away from that walking after your own desires and after the world and after Satan and turn to Him humbly. People who come to Him like that, He accepts. And you can step into verse 4. Most of us here, though, have already done that. And it needs to be made clear for you as well. Something important here in, in this that affects your view of God and your view of His salvation of you. It is important for you, I think, to realize that God loves you uniquely. He is biased towards you. 
Now, it's true. The Bible does say things like God does not show favoritism. It says things like that. But let's be careful. What it means is that God does not evaluate people based on human worldly standings. I value you more than you because you're smarter. Or you more than you because you're richer. Or you more than you because you're more beautiful, etc. God doesn't evaluate anything based on that. We're all equal before him in that regard. But he is biased towards his children. Like any parent is. It's a significant part of your being. It is important for you to realize that the love of Christ for you is unique. You, he is blessed with every spiritual blessing. You, he has saved and sealed. You, he is bearing the fruit of the Spirit in, bringing heaven down to you now. You, he has chosen as his portion and his lot precious to him. We pray, pray, pray that he would give us eyes to see how rich that inheritance is to him, how rich his people are to him. He is certainly biased on your behalf. You were dead in your trespasses. Paul reminds us of that again, right here in the midst of this great work of God. He wants us to keep that in mind. You were dead, but he chose you for the opposite. That throws us back into chapter 1. It's important here if we begin to ask, how is it that he loves me? That's going to lead us right back into some of the things we already talked about in chapter 1. I'm not going to go down that path much today here. If you want to think about that more, we can talk about it later. You can look back at those other sermons. But it's important to realize that right now, as you sit here as a believer, he loves you uniquely. Especially, he is biased towards you. It erupts out of Paul's heart then. By grace you've been saved. He's getting ahead of himself, really. He's getting down into verses 8, 9, and 10. But he can't really contain himself because it just overwhelms him. The switch from wrath to love. Stunning, marvelous grace. It overwhelms Paul. It is stunning, marvelous, undeserved, unmerited, unearned blessing and favor. That's grace. God has done that for you. The power of God at work in you. Even before you were a Christian brought you back to life. And notice the parallel here between what, what's happened to you and what the power of God did for Jesus. Jesus was raised, exalted and seated. Look on in the next verse. It's exactly what's happened here to you. You were raised, lifted up, and seated in the heavenly places. It's not an accidental parallel. You were in Christ, whom God the Father worked powerfully in. And now He's done almost the same things in you. Now, you're not seated at the right hand, reigning over everything, but you do have power. You have spiritual power in the battle, in the spiritual realm. In Christ, the victory is ours. This is good news to us. He took those of us who were spiritually dead, and now has given us power over our enemies to fight and to win. God has done a marvelous thing in you, by grace. God made you alive in mercy. Why did he do that? You can ask that question in two different ways. You can ask that question, you know, why me and not this other person? Or not this other person yet, at least. And if you ask that, that throws us back to verse 4, because he loved you. And if you ask, well, why did he love me? That throws us back to chapter 1. And I said, I'm not going to go there this morning. We can talk about that later. There's another way you can ask the why question. Why did he do this? And you can ask it in this sense. Why did he do this at all? Not 
why this person and not that person, but why anybody? Why save anybody? I mean, all were dead, deserving objects of wrath. That would have been justice. And God is just and holy, holy, holy. Why save anybody? And the answer to that question is elaborated on in the third part of this passage in verse 7. Verses 1 to 3 were about you. You were dead, an object of wrath. Verses 4 to 6 were about God and what he did. God made you alive in mercy. Now the third part. Why did he do that? God raised you from the dead for his own glory. In mercy, God raised you for his own glory. Verse 7 reads, So that... Now that word tells you there's a, there's a reason coming. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He raised you up so that from age to age to age to age on into the ages, plural, from now into eternity, he would be able to have an object lesson for something. He wants to exhibit something. But what does he want to exhibit? He wants to exhibit the vast, immeasurable, abundant riches of his saving grace. That rich mercy. He wants that to be shown. And so he's going to display it in us. In the vast kindness that he showed us in Christ. Not so that the abstract concept of grace would be seen and worshipped. He doesn't want us to say, wow, grace is a neat thing. He wants us to go beyond that. Not just to see and to worship grace, but to see and to worship the grace giver. The gracious one behind that grace. He wants him, himself in other words, to be worshipped and glorified. Ultimately, in exhibiting grace in us, God is trying to exhibit himself at work in us. You see what happens here. Take, for instance, those spiritual forces of evil that we've talked about a lot. Those ones who war against us and are also learning from us. See that in chapter 3 here shortly. They look on and they say, whoa. Look at that God and his power to change people. That guy was on my side yesterday, fighting along with me, my ally in this great work. And now God just stole him from me, made him alive, and now he's on the other side. What a God that is. And look, as the sanctification process continues, and I become more and more like Christ and more and more set against that previous life. And look what else he's doing. He didn't just make that guy a slave of his. He made him an heir. Look what he's given him. Look what he's doing in him. Look who he's making him to be. That is a powerful God. That is a gracious God. That is a merciful God. Even I have to admit that. So it's the spiritual force of evil. But there's coming a day of judgment, though, when he'll be removed from the scene. And then what? Well, we will remain the saints. And what we've begun to notice now about God's gracious work in our life, for age, from age to age to age to age, on into eternity, we will learn more and more about that. We will see and experience and continually learn about the vastness of the riches of God's grace shown to us. We who were once objects of wrath, shown to us now in His eternal kindness to us. 
He turns His countenance towards us and gives Himself to us in fellowship and intimacy forever into all eternity, a great inheritance, and we will bless His name forever and ever. And if He had not determined to love us and then made us alive, we would have remained dead to Him forever and there would be no eternal worship of God for His kindness and mercy and grace. Be sure of it. This work of God on our behalf is a tremendous, stunning gift to us. But be equally sure of it. God's glory is foremost in God's mind. God loves us, yes, but He is no idolater. God always worships the ultimately glorious one, Himself. And God always works first and foremost for the glory of Himself. Praise God for exalting His name in this work of saving grace. And praise God doubly for doing it in a way that is such a blessing to us. He has had mercy on us who deserved otherwise. And that is a stunning gift. And it is too bad that just like my free minivan, it is so easy to not be very impressed with that. Or to not be very impressed with that for very long. You know how this is. It is extremely easy to walk out those doors and by 1.30 this afternoon not even remember what this sermon was about. It's true. It's true for me and I'm preaching it. It's true. <laughs> I pray that God would give grace to open your and my eyes to see this work and to savor it. And more pointedly, to see and to savor the one who worked it. Paul has worked hard here to grab you emotionally. To grab Christians emotionally. He laid out verses 1 to 3 and then repeated their main theme in verse 5. Not to inform you. You already knew that. But to remind you. And to remind you in a way that convicts and brings emotion bubbling up to the surface. He could have reminded you more succinctly, couldn't he have? He could have just said, you weren't saved. And that would have sufficed. But no, actually, it wouldn't have sufficed. God moved Paul to drag you back through your lostness and your utter inability to respond to God, your deadness and your utter hopelessness, the wrath due to you. He takes you to the lip of the pit of hell, face to face with the holy, holy, holy God who is deeply provoked by your rebellion. The effect is that you're left standing there, ready to be justly, rightly executed for your crimes. The sword is swinging. The guillotine blade is falling. If you will, Abraham's knife is coming down on his son. And then it is stopped. Or more appropriately, it is turned aside and the blow falls on God the Son. The Father was pleased instead to crush the Son because of His great love for you. And that is presented like this to knock you down, to stun you, to cause you to fall on your face and worship and revere Him and praise Him forever for His immeasurably rich grace shown to you in kindness in Christ. 
Oh, may that grip you and change your inside. May reverence and awe and worship and praise consume your mind as this gracious Christ consumes your mind. May it overflow your mind and drip from your lips and flow down your arms into your cupped hands. And may it cascade out of your hands and fall down and cover your feet so that you walk in a manner worthy of this calling. That you walk in a manner that matches this grace given to you from this kind of God. That we love Him because He gave His Son in love to you in your place. May you believe the Scriptures when they tell you that if He has given you the Son, will He not also along with Him give you all things? May you believe that. May you believe the Scriptures when they tell you of the inheritance that is coming to you proven by the sure, earnest payment already living in you bringing heaven and heaven-like living down to you right now. May you believe that. May you see that future with your eyes. And then may you obey the Scriptures when they tell you to walk in a manner that matches this calling. May you live out the life of obedience and faith for the sake of the nations, the sake of His name among the nations, and the sake of His name in your own life. Trusting Him with your tomorrows and your forever. Believe Him. Trust Him. Follow Him. Obey Him. Walk in a manner worthy of this calling. Look at His glorious grace that has saved you. Look at it. Pray, pray, pray for Him to open your eyes so that as you read the Scriptures and fellowship with other believers so that you can see it. Be gripped by it. Pray for that. This is powerful work on your behalf. A significant part of your being. You were dead. And now, glory of glories, you are not. You used to walk in sin and trespasses and now glory of glories you need not and you must not. And this is all possible because God in power has raised you from the dead. Worship Him. Rejoice. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.